0: To High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Oneet Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on Hightruths.com. Hey there, we will be rocking and rolling with another American rock star in the addiction field. And in this episode, we'll be talking about stigma. I worked last night in the emergency department and treated a patient who needed MAT, medication assisted treatment, for his heroin use disorder. Why is the emergency department the place where people go to get MAT, especially during a pandemic? That's a good question for a different episode. But just so you all know and rest assured that the emergency departments of America are the safety net for medical and social problems in our country. That's our job, and we're proud of it. I like talking to my patients and give them encouragement for their tough journey ahead. I asked him if he had any other medical issues as he told me he needed surgery for his shoulder and wrist. But the orthopedic surgeon kicked him out of the office because of his addiction and would not do the surgery. This is an example of stigma. I explained that he would do better if the surgery was postponed until his opioid requirements go down. If he entered surgery with a high opioid requirement, after surgery he would really have a hard time with pain control. I also gave him tips as a future man in recovery how to advocate for best pain management with regional anesthesia and blocks that can avoid returning to opioids, but I have not always been understanding of people who struggled with addiction. I am guilty of using stigmatizing language, the drunk in the hallway, the messed out patient who needed sedation. I've also worked with colleagues that say they don't want to work with those type of patients. Over the years, I've completely changed my attitude as a doctor. I used to stigmatize and get frustrated by those type of patients, and now those patients are my favorite. It is indeed rewarding to treat a chronic, relaxing disease of the brain where people are very grateful. Working in the emergency department is often a thankless experience. We can do CPR and heroic measures that literally save someone's life, and we rarely get acknowledgement, let alone a thank you. The very critical patients and families never remember us in the emergency department. They end up in the ICU, and those doctors and nurses will be getting the thanks. The biggest and most memorable thank you I got as an emergency physician was from one of those patients. I had a patient who tracked me down after months. I didn't even remember him. He figured out my shift and came to find me. At first, I thought it was kind of creepy. He was my patient months ago when he was drunk in the emergency department and acting very belligerent. When he sobered up and before I discharged him home, I told him about his aggressive behavior and how he was cursing at the nurses and at the doctors, and that now he seemed like a nice man. Apparently, that hit home. And now in recovery, he came to say thank you. Changing attitudes and stigma makes a difference, not just to the patient, but also to the staff. With that story, let's hear a question of the day from a very special community leader, Adama Dionysia. Hi Dr. Lev, my name is Adama Dionysiak, Executive Director at Champions for Health, which is a nonprofit that works with the San Diego County Medical Society. You're one of our subject matter experts on our project in medical education for the opioids epidemic. With your advice, our education goes beyond opioids and includes the issues of methamphetamine, concurrent prescriptions of medications that are addicting, and the risk assessment of marijuana. If your listeners are interested, they can learn more about Champions for Health at www.championsforhealth.org. My question for you is about stigma. We want to include stigma into our medical education. What are some of the best models you can recommend? Thank you, Adama, for your important question. I absolutely love working with you and Katie Rogers at Champions for Health and very much appreciate that we are able to expand our medical curriculum beyond opioids and innovations to safe prescribing such as concurrent depression medications, methamphetamines, marijuana, as well as the important issue of stigma. Such a great project that I so much enjoy. There is only one immediate name and figure that is associated with the eliminating stigma movement in the United States, and that is Gary Mendel, the founder and CEO of Shatterproof. Shatterproof is a national nonprofit dedicated to reversing the addiction crisis in the United States. After losing his son Brian to addiction in 2011, Gary founded Shatterproof to spare other families the tragedy he and his family have suffered. And since founding Shatterproof, Mr. Mandel has been recognized as a national leader in the addiction space, working to transform how opioids and substance use disorders are treated. Mr. Mandel has testified in front of the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, and his opinions are frequently reflected in the media. Before Shatterproof, Mr. Mendel spent decades as an entrepreneur. He founded HEI Hotel and Resorts, a multi-billion dollar company that oversees a portfolio of approximately 70 first-class hotels. Gary Mendel's bio is included in the High Truth show notes. Gary Mendel, welcome to High Truths.
1: Thank you. Dr. Lev, thank you so much for having me. Really thrilled to be here.
0: Thank you. Um, What an honor to have a rock star and pioneer of addiction treatment and advocacy on High Truths. So I thought we would start by having you share with our High Truths audience how you changed your life around from being a successful businessman, hotel entrepreneur, to a national advocate on the issues of addiction and being invited to the White House committees and really shatterproof the organization You run, has become a household name around the country and around federal government.
1: Well, for me, um, as you mentioned, I was in the hotel business. um, And my older son, Brian, was struggling with addiction for many years, uh, eight years. And tragically, um, on October 20th, 2011, I was woken up in the middle of the night by my cell phone ringing. And when I picked it up, I was told that my son had just died. Uh, he was 25 years old, and he hadn't used a substance in 13 months. And equally tragic than him dying, it wasn't just addiction that took my son's life. It was the feeling of shame he had every morning when he opened his eyes, feeling like an outcast all day long. That caused him to wake up that morning, research suicide notes, uh, write a note of his own light a candle, and take his own life, alone. And from that, as any father, I was destroyed. But as the months, weeks and months went on, next to my bed was the serenity prayer in my nightstand. And I kept reading and thinking about that first sentence, having to accept what I couldn't change. But as a little more time went on, I started focusing on that second sense the courage to change the things that we can. So I had some flexibility in the sense that I owned my own business. I decided to take six months off of my business and start traveling the country in the search of two questions, answers to two questions. What could I have done better as a father? And what could be done to spare other families of the tragedy my family had suffered? And I started traveling the country, meeting with the best in the field. I was in DC at Washington DC a lot, meeting with federal agencies and the leader of those leaders of those agencies flying around the country, meeting with the best researchers in prevention and treatment, meeting with, with, with different advocacy arms, other nonprofits. And after three months, there was one. Haunting thing that stood above everything else I had learned. But our federal government had given grants to researchers all across the country in the decades prior to my son dying of tens of billions of dollars. And those researchers had used that funding really well, done a great job. They had created and tested through randomly controlled trials programs that had proven without any doubt successfully to significantly programs you can put in our communities and our healthcare system that had proven without any doubt to be able to significantly reduce the number of our loved ones who ever use drugs and ever become addicted. A second body of knowledge, which had again, through randomly controlled trials, protocols that if used in treatment programs, would significantly improve the outcomes of those who were being treated. Outcomes that would reach the same percentage levels as those being treated for heart disease or diabetes or asthma. And a third body of knowledge, which again had proven through randomly controlled trials, to significantly change the way that our country thinks about this disease, to reduce the stigma, but the way the public feels, the stigma that those who are addicted feel, and the stigma against the medications that treat this disease. All this information was sitting in peer-reviewed medical journals, and hardly any of it was in use. It killed me again. Three months after, five months after my son died, when I learned that, it, it, I was destroyed all over again. My son didn't have to die. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of others don't have didn't have to die at that time. All we needed to do is take the research that exists and get it implemented. Can I look anybody in the eye and say we can end addiction tomorrow? No. But can I look anybody in the eye and say we can cut it in half, the destruction of this disease, by simply implementing what research has already proven to work, already funded by our federal government? The answer is yes, we can do that. And I asked myself, well, why isn't it happening yet? And the answer became very clear. There, were, there was Susan Coleman, Autism Speaks, MS Society, Michael J. Fox for, for, for his disease, American Heart Association, American Cancer. There was not in this country one well-funded national organization that was leading the fight to protect our families against addiction, like there was for other diseases on the same scale and scope. So I guess that was a long answer to your short question. The answer is, when I saw that, this was no longer a six-month leave of absence from work. This was, let's leave my business, let's develop a business plan, and let's bring together millions of Americans within one organization and empowering them to create the change that's needed To protect our families from the third largest cause of death in this country. And I've now dedicated the rest of my life to this cause, to engaging others in an organization together and, and outside our organization within partnerships to make this happen.
0: Gary, that's very impactful. And, um, and thank you for, for that work. And I, and I um, relate to, um, that passion and mission to make this a, a, a lifetime, um, uh, objective and, and cause for you. And you are really making Brian's memory, um, and elevating it, um, for cause. And I'm really, um, I'm, I'm, I'm moved and energized and really what you do is, is why I do what I do. And, and you are transforming his memory into action and, um, and really, you know, elevating the cause and and making, you know, his memory count. And with that, tell us about Shatterproof and, and what your objectives are.
1: Sure. Shatterproof is focused on three pillars of work. Number one, transforming the treatment delivery system for addiction for those with this disease. Number two, ending the stigmas associated with this disease, those who have it, and the medications that treat it. And number three, providing the information families need to protect their loved ones, both preventatively or if they have this disease, through treatment and recovery. And there's so much information out there to boil it down into user-friendly formats so families can understand it. So again, transforming the treatment delivery system, ending the stigmas, and information in readily usable formats for families.
0: That's great. And I encourage anyone listening to go to the Shatterproof website because it is very user-friendly and has a lot of information. And I want to ask you Adama's question. Adama um, is uh, working and I'm helping her develop a curriculum for the medical community. And Chapter 1 is Eliminating Stigma. Through clinical understanding is how we're framing it. But what do you think? What is, you know, if you gave us uh, advice as we cu- develop this curriculum, what would it be?
1: Sure. Let me start broader and then, and then get narrower to specific to the medical community, to providers. Broader, we studied this for a year. We studied 11 social movements um, that have all had success in changing the way the country thinks about a particular issue. We had ex- interviews with over 50 experts, and we boiled down into an actionable plan. I mean, the first question was, can we reduce the stigma of addiction by studying all this? And if we studied it and thought that we couldn't, we would have stopped. But halfway through, we learned we could. and We pulled out the key success factors, and then we finished our plan for the next six months using those key success factors of what works to change the way that our society will think about this disease. It comes down to three actionable items. One is education in a certain way, and I'll come back to it. Number two, changing our language, and I'll come back to that. And number three, changing policies. It's three types of work, of actions, very simple things for society, to do, segments within our society to do. So let's talk about education. What works for education is I found I learned through all this research that we did that we were doing it wrong at Shatterproof. We were messaging that addiction is a disease, addiction is a disease, addiction is a disease. That doesn't help. In in, in a Gallup poll, national poll survey a couple years ago, about half of Americans said those who are addicted, it's not their fault. It's a chronic illness. About half said It is their fault they're not trying hard enough. Weak willpower. But I want to say to you and the listeners, that 50-50 relationship, even if we can improve it, and I'm sure we can by messaging it's a disease, doesn't matter. Because 80% of those answering, responding to the survey, which included many who said it's a chronic illness, not their fault, said I'm not, even though it's not their fault, it's a chronic illness. I'm not comfortable associating with someone addicted as my friend, my coworker, my neighbor, marrying into my family. Huh. Think of the harm that causes. I can bet my right arm that people addicted haven't read that survey, but I can bet my left arm and I'm lefty that everyone addicted feels it. Because if 80% of Americans don't want to associate or are uncomfortable associating with someone addicted as a friend, coworker, neighbor, marrying into your family, you feel it. And not only do you feel it, you internalize it and you begin to believe it that I'm not worthy, that I am not worthy of being someone's friend, coworker, or neighbor, or dating my neighbor's daughter or son. And you lose hope. And that's what happened to my son. But this is much bigger than my son. It's not about my son. It's about millions of people with this, 20 million people with this disease.
0: But your so, son gives a good example and, and, um, and, but it's interesting because if you meet people who are in recovery, who've gone through recovery, they're the nicest human beings you'll ever meet.
1: Absolutely. So I'm, you're exactly right. So that's what I going to pick up on. So how do you change that, the knowledge, attitudes and behaviors? It's not about messaging this is a disease. That's what we have Shatterproof is doing and many others are doing and it's wrong.
0: Oh my it's gosh. About, I have to take messi- notes, Gary. I need to change my curriculum. Uh, that's I was fine. That-
1: I'm going to send you all the information. I'm <laughs> wow. going to send you all the information. Okay. For the listeners right now, it's wow. not about messaging it's a disease. It's about messaging it is a treatable disease. Mm. And it's humanizing it called, through what's called contact based education, which means those with this disease are humanizing it with a human face, not in words, but with a human face on a 45-second to a minute and a half short video, or in person, or with a picture with words, with with one of two messages, only one of two that have been proven to work. One, hi, I'm Gary. And a video. Imagine listening to, watching a, a minute, a, a 60 second video with someone who's 25 years old, who's doing a self video, a video of themselves on an iPhone and says, Hi, I'm Gary. I'm 25 years old. I work at Goldman Sachs. I've been promoted twice in the last two years. I just got engaged. I'm hoping to, to get married. I'm expecting to get married next June and have three children. I go to church on Sundays or synagogue on Saturdays. I coach little league in my community on Tuesdays to get back to my community. And I'm addicted to heroin. But you know what? It's a treatable disease. I've been treated effectively. I'm doing fine. I maintain my treatment. And I'm a valuable member of society. And I'm Gary. I'm not an addict. I'm Gary. You do, you have a, these, do you
0: have a video like that? And can we I have a
1: hundred of them. We have the hundred, a hundred of them.
0: Can you pick one good one and I'll add it to my curriculum? Absolutely. Love but that. I, but
1: I want to now migrate it to that's how you change the public's perception of this disease. Yeah. And the state of Pennsylvania announced last summer that they were going to be the first state to run our campaign to collect these videos and distribute them through... 30 or 40 or 50 state-based local community organizations to get them out through their networks and also distribute them through social media, through influencers. And for very low cost, get it out. We've been running the campaign now, which started at the end of September for five, six months. And we've already had 2 million impressions, almost, almost 500,000 video views. It's only been six months. We're going to run it for a year. We pre-surveyed a thousand people in the state. We're going to run it for a year and we're going to post-survey a thousand people in the state and we're going to see the changes in knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors. And we can do this in companies. We can do this in PTAs and school systems. We could do this in healthcare systems and we'll talk about that a little bit. We could do this in media entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. That is called contact-based education. Let me go on to for a second to language, and I'm going to come back to what's how should we message different in the medical community. I just have to
0: tell you how I love that you connect your you know business side of your brain with Gallup polls and promoting a product with um, promoting good medicine and attitudes, and really you've been so good at that that you know something that the medical community alone could never do. You're you're able to do.
1: Well, thank you. it's it's what I bring. It's 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 what it's the it's the benefit that I can bring to this field. Yeah, you so have so many this others have so much so, much so much knowledge that I don't have. This is a perspective that I can bring.
0: It's amazing and it's effective. Wow! Um, language.
1: Okay. language. Let's talk about language for a second. Um, what I'm about to tell you is not like opinion or not like it feels better. It works. There was a study done years ago. Three hundred health professional professionals in one room. Across the hall, 300 other health professionals randomly controlled. They didn't pick the room. They didn't get to choose which room they were in. They were randomly assigned to each room. People in the first room, the professionals in the first room, these are healthcare professionals, were told a story about an addict. And they described a story about an addict. People in the second room were told the exact same story about Johnny, who's addicted to drugs. Same story. When the first group was surveyed when they came out, they were more likely to to respond to the to the to, to a question. Let's get people to the criminal justice system because they were told a story about an addict. The people in the second room were more likely to say, "Let's get Johnny to the healthcare system because it's Johnny. He's addicted to drugs. He, no different than Johnny who's got diabetes." So language matters. We published a language guide which, which Holly can send to you and get out to anybody who wants it. The right words to say versus the wrong words to say. No more addict. It's first person. It's Johnny. Johnny has diabetes. Johnny's addicted to drugs. Johnny has asthma. He's Johnny. There's no more clean and dirty. If you have a drug test and you're clean, what happens if you, if you relapse? Are you dirty? No. You had a relapse. We'll give, we have, we have it. It's been approved by the National Academy of Medicine. We vetted it back and forth with all the experts, ran it through the National Academy of Medicine. They approved it. It's now out and and we're spreading it. But now let's go to medical professionals. What would we do different with medical professionals?
0: So wait, can I ask you about words a little more? Sure. Um, First of all, can you send me that story on Johnny? Because I'll put that in my curriculum as well. Absolutely. No, and I could like start with the, you know, giving that story to our medical audience and ask Absolutely. them, what would you do? Should, would you give them treatment? Would you send them to jail? Would, I, I think I like to do that. Um, but, what if I slip up, Gary, am I a bad person? I, I can't, I, I've seen the, the words matters guides. I'm even writing it in the curriculum and I do my best, but I, I notice that I will slip up and even people who are in the addiction field, they'll say, Oh, that person is a drug addict or I was, I, even people call themselves, I was a drug addict in no, your, in your way of trying to change things. Does that make, I feel what, that I'm a bad person or, no, I screwed not at all. up not, because not, I not didn't do close. it right,
1: right? Not, not even close, not even close. Um, we're all, we don't change things on a dime, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're, if, if, if any listener, if you or any listener is used to using the word addict, which most people in our society are, right? Knowing that is harmful, knowing clean and dirty is harmful, reading our language guides, seeing all the harmful words and what words you should be using, try to move over time to those words. It's not going to happen overnight because people slip. You're used to habits. It's fine. It's no different than harm reduction. It's not like you're using drugs. You're not using drugs. Can you use less drugs? It's everything is everything needs to move in the right direction. It's not like yes or no. There's gray. Absolutely. You're not a bad person. If you slip and use the word addict, just know you shouldn't. So now let's go to your back to your original question. You're developing a curriculum for healthcare professionals. Um, number one, we partnered with Dell medical school and we created a curriculum, mostly them, and we're partnered on it. So we can send you that curriculum. It may be helpful for healthcare professionals. Okay. That's number one. Number two, I describe to you the things that are important for everyone. Language change, messaging, messaging that this is a disease.
0: A, also, treatable I, disease, a, treatable a treatable disease. A treatable
1: disease. Excuse me. I think I slipped myself. Um, <laughs> I <learned. laughs> and also messaging, which I didn't mention, if you're in recovery, all the barriers you went through to get treated because that changes the way that people will think about policy change when they know you had to go through these 16 barriers to get treated. But now let's talk about healthcare professionals. I'm about to suggest something that's never been researched, but my gut tells me it will work. Yeah. But I would try it, actually, and I would randomly control it. Survey people before, have people do this, and do it after, which would be, think about creating a video of a dot, have a dot, and instead of having someone who's addicted do a 45 second or minute video, what if we had a healthcare professional, a primary care doctor, do a video of himself on an iPhone or professionally done, and he tells a story about, hi, I am Dr. XYZ. I used to never want people in my office who were addicted. I thought it was bad for my practice. I thought it would give bad reputation to my practice. I thought people who were addicted weren't trying hard enough. They were bad people and I wouldn't treat them. One day by accident, someone who's addicted, who I didn't know, I didn't know was addicted became my patient. He told me he was addicted and I had to treat him and I was able to treat him. With evidence-based care, because I quickly hooked up, uh, uh, connected with someone who gave me the right things to do. I can tell you it was the best experience of my life. Because I've been treating people with diabetes and referring people to heart specialists and referring people to uh, XYZ specialists and handling some stuff, people who are overweight, handling those people by myself. And you get some satisfaction from doing that. Taking someone who was living on the street, now the person is back to work getting married and expecting children. And I was the one as a doctor who helped him. It was the best experience as a doctor I've ever had. Think about that's never been researched. But I would think if we can get a few doctors to do that video, which I'm sure we can because I know they're out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it. I'm I'm one of them, right? I used to yeah. like Ugh, another drunk in the hallway. You're right. Wow. We
1: get those videos out there. Out there.
0: Right. It's so annoying.
1: How, we yeah. get those videos out there. How can that not help? But it, that has not been proven
0: by research yet. Right, but the, the frustrating part, then, I don't know if we're ready to that. That's that would be a video for people who, are, for physicians, were you know, you know, ready to make the change of of, of treating the patients. But there's every single medical profession. Um, has addiction in their practice. There's, there's not a single one in the country, maybe a pathologist. And even then they have, you know,
1: so that comes back to the basics, right?
0: The right. Basics. So, but we need, we need to be able to refer. So I, I gave a, a, a talk to a group of podiatrists and they were like, okay, I'm ready to do, you know, you, you got me all gung ho. Oh, I'll, I'm ready to make change for people in pain and people with addiction. Who do I go to? And, and that's where. We don't really have that connection in every community for, you know, if you break your arm, I'm going to send you to an orthopedic surgeon. Right. Right. If you have a heart attack, I'm going to send you to a cardiologist. But if you have an addiction, then, and that's where I think the stigma in the medical community is really from, is from frustration of not having lack of tools. And, and well, I, cause because but that comes back
1: to stigma. That comes back to stigma because why aren't medical students who are required to take coursework before they graduate medical school and how different parts of your body work, except for the basics of addiction.
0: You know what? I could tell you, Gary, that that's changed. I have two daughters in medical school, first year and second year. And my first year daughter, medical student called me um, just this week and said, hey, can I go over some cases with you? And she had cases of pain and addiction right there, first year medical school. So that's, I think that's, that that's wonderful, changed. but I
1: can still tell you it's less than 50% of the medical schools that require that.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we're starting. We're starting. We're
1: moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, but yes. And, and we need to fill the, 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 the workforce to, for treatment. Um, and, and I think that that'll help eliminate stigma.
1: Well, we have a, there's a bill in Congress right now that we are working actively to get passed into law that would require any doctor in the country. Who has a DEA license to prescribe controlled substances to be required to take court optional you know, not optional but, um, coursework in the basics of the prevention and treatment of addiction because if you can prescribe OxyContin, how could you not be trained on how to treat someone who's addicted to OxyContin?
0: well i i, I... I like where you're going with that, which is educating on, on, on tools of the medical community to expand their treatment. I mean, frankly, if you think about it, we knew nothing about COVID and I just stayed up at the beginning of the pandemic and I didn't sleep and just read every single thing I can. So I'd know to recognize my first case and know what to treat and the, and the information is changing. I'm keeping up with it and we're doing it. Um, I have an issue with government mandated education on the medical community. It, Um, that's what got us into the opioid prescription epidemic in the first place. It was government mandated education.
1: Well, Uh, let me, let me, let me react to that. And I agree with you. If the medical community was doing it voluntarily, that is far better than government mandates. But the medical community has not done it on its own. Um, and so what choice does someone like me have who wants to save people's lives?
0: Well, I think we are doing it. It's just not to the speed that you would want. And I get that.
1: Well, it's not that I want. This is not about me. This is about...
0: That the country needs.
1: People are dying today. Today, there are 200 families today. No, I'm wrong. Today, there Mm -hmm. are 500 families in a cemetery today burying a family member. And tomorrow, there will be 500. And the next day, there will be 500. It's not about what I want. It's about. The third largest cause of death in this country that we can cut in half by all we have to do is implement what the federal government has already funded and researchers have so wonderfully created a knowledge base.
0: So tell me about um, other harmful policies that that act as barriers in in, in what you're trying to to promote.
1: Well, what, um, Healthcare benefits. Healthcare benefits are supposed to be by law in parity for those with addiction and mental health to other physical diseases. It's gotten a lot better since that law was passed and activated, but it's not fully implemented yet. And so we need to plug holes in that. Um, reimbursement rates and reimbursement payment models are not the same as other physical diseases and they need to be. To draw on the demand of doctors to treat it properly. I just meant we just talked about another one, professional education. It doesn't have to be a government mandate. It could be the accrediting bodies which accredit medical schools and accredit nursing schools. To say for any nursing school or any medical school to be an accredited program, it has to have the basic education on the prevention and treatment and recovery of addiction. It doesn't have to be a federal and- mandate.
0: And Gary, I think that we're getting there. When, when I was at ONDCP, we, we got a survey of medical schools, ACGME programs that approve residencies and CME programs, continue medical education, and all across the board. Um, these institutions have greatly increased their education on, on pain management, appropriate prescribing, as well as the issue of addiction. All of them are, are doing that. And as a matter of fact, this month, I'm participating in a ACGME Congress, two day Congress, uh, with mandatory, uh, education ahead of even participating in this Congress. And ACGME is the organization that accredits all the medical residencies right. across the United States. Correct. And, that's and the, so that's the organization we've been in touch
1: with. Yeah.
0: Right. So and so we're, we're doing it. We're doing it. And, and, um, I think voluntary is, you know, is, is better way to go because as you know, um, since you've been doing this every year, you're learning more and you're getting better at what you're doing and, and your messaging is better and your information gets. And when you have mandated educations, I took the X waiver course and it left me with more questions than answers. Um, we're in total after, alignment after listening. Yeah. We're in,
1: we're in total alignment. If, if the less federal oversight, the better. If, but we need to ensure the medical community needs to ensure that every doctor and nurse and professional in the healthcare field has base not specialty, but the basic education about the prevention, treatment and recovery of addiction. And as long as that's done voluntarily, I don't care how it's done. And this is again it's not about me. I think
0: it's I think we're getting I think we're getting there because um I I've I've learned, um, I've been around, um, I don't know, a doctor for 30 years, that the medical community is not special in how they view things in the world. So, you know, when we were told, hey, docs, you need to prescribe more opioids, that was a national movement, kind of like you're creating a national movement in addiction and, and stigma. But there was a national movement on, hey, let's treat pain. And, you know, the medical community jumped on that. And now there's a national movement like, hey, that's too much. And so the medical community is jumping on that too. So with all those videos that you're creating that, that you are approaching the public, that leaks onto the medical community. Great. Um, great. So I, I think, you know, I think that that, that all that has effect on the medical community as well. And, and, um, and then when you leave it open, people get really creative. You know, when we told the medical community, we want less opioids and we, but we still want pain. And they came up with amazing, you know, you can have, you know, opioid free, painful spine surgery and have zero pain. You know, we could do with anesthetic blocks and, 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 and medications and way, you know, that, you know, they've gone way further than you ever expected with just kind of a goal in mind. And I think the medical community responds to that a lot, a lot better than you need to take this class for eight hours, whether you like it or not. Um,
1: Got it. Okay. I, anyway,
0: that's kind of my I, thing. I,
1: I agree with you, by the way. Uh, all I care yeah. about, the all that. You want assist- the outcome. Yeah. And again, yeah. let's take it away from me. There will be 500 families in a cemetery today. Let's, let's cut that in half.
0: America needs it today. Correct.
1: Our families need it. Our nation needs it. Our society needs it. Our loved ones need it
0: and And what's um your and Chatterproof stance on the x waiver the the I feel like it's a a barrier in in prescribing treatment
1: absolutely. We are working hard to eliminate the x waiver. I think it was put in place for the right reasons when it was passed originally correct, but now that we have more information and we know so many people are addicted and need treatment, and there's so almost no diversion of. The medications without the X waiver,
0: mm-hmm. it,
1: we need to eliminate it, right, like yesterday. Yep. And we need to replace it with base, the education we've been talking about.
0: Right. And and we got rid of it for a few days, and unfortunately, yeah. it came back. And really, the genie's out of the box, because, out of the bottle, I'm- because <laughs> the you can't tell a bunch of doctors saying, "Oh, you don't have to take this." Um. Oh, did we say that? Oh, never mind. You do have to take this course. Um So again, you don't need an X waiver to prescribe, and we don't need an X waiver to prescribe oxycodone. Um, Why would we need to take a government-mandated eight-hour course to to help save somebody's life?
1: I mean, less than five percent of the doctors in this country. The answer is we are completely agreement, vehemently agree. Um, people are dying because of it, and. Because of the X waiver, only less than 5% of the primary care doctors in the country can prescribe a medication to treat someone who's addicted, even though almost all of them can prescribe Oxycontin or Vicodin or Percocet to get someone addicted. It makes zero sense. Zero sense. Um, It needs to be changed. Um, Hopefully the Biden, I know the Biden administration is looking at it now. And let's, let's get rid. Let's, let's X the X waiver.
0: Yeah. X the X waiver. That's, that is the hashtag. Um So, good. I'm glad we're on that. Now, I read something that Shatters doing that I didn't quite understand, but I thought it may be relevant to the curriculum that we're developing. It's it, You call it the Addiction Stigma Index. What is that?
1: That is everything we do, we want to measure results to show what works, what doesn't work, and also to hold ourselves accountable. And... It's not about just in any business. It's not about activity. It's about results. And so we have designed a bunch of several programs like we've talked about, a campaign we're running now in the state of Pennsylvania. We've designed a program that that companies can do for their employees to reduce, to change the way that they think about this disease so their employees, whoever's addicted, will feel comfortable getting treated. We've created a program for local community organizations. So everything we do, we'll do a pre-survey, run a program, and do a post-survey and see how we did. Well, the National Stigma Index is how is our country doing as a whole? It's not like one state or three companies or six community organizations. How is our country doing on this? Are we are we penetrating? Are we getting 15, 20, 30 states to do this? We're having national impact. Are we getting thousands of companies to do this to have national impact? So it's nothing different than instead of doing a pre and post survey in a small population of a company or a state or a community, this is surveying the entire country by state. So we can see it by state, but the entire country. How do people answer these set of questions? What are their knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors? Are they, where are they on the comfort level as a country? on being comfortable associating with someone addicted as a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, marrying into your family? What what stigma do, they, do the do people in the United States feel about the medications that treat someone addicted? What do people in this country who are addicted feel about themselves? With a series, series of evidence-based questions that have been proven through already existing research to be valid and reliable indicators of how people answer them, Run the survey nationally, run two years or a year or two years, do it again and see how did our country change.
0: So do we have an index now or is that something you're working on?
1: We're working on and we expect to do the first national index sometime in the next 12 months.
0: Wow. I can't wait to to hear where we are at. Um, let's say the thing about stigma, we, you and I talked about this before is I worry that there are, there are people out there, and this exists, that people are using the issue of stigma to then normalize drug use. Like, wait, I, you know, I could drink some alcohol. Why shouldn't I be able to buy my cocaine at the bar also? Um, and, and there's huge movements and money out there, um, uh, and organizations like Sat- Shatterproof, but they're doing you know, I think the opposite of what you're trying to do. And they're, they're normalizing drug use. So we don't want stigma to Johnny, who has an addiction, or Adam, who's trying to get, you know, treatment or Mary. But I think stigma is a tool in saying, you know, don't smoke cigarettes, that's bad for your health. You know, um, you know, don't get into to drugs, that's, that's bad for you. We like you, we love you. And you need If you need help, we're here to do it and do it in a compassionate way. But the actual use of the drug, we don't want you to do that.
1: Like many things, there's not a perfect answer. Um, I don't think there's any question. On balance, the pluses and minuses, we want to end the stigma related to addiction, related to those who have it, and the medications that treat it. are there some offsetting issues that come with it, like the one you just mentioned? Yes. We don't want to normalize drug use like it's okay when you're driving a car, raising a family, etc. So, I don't have a perfect answer for that one. It's a little bit of something that we have to work through as a society. But let's let's end the stigma of addiction. Let's change the way that we think about it. Let's get society to realize everyone that it's a treatable illness, and you can l- be treated and live a full and fulfilling life at work, at home, in a neighborhood, marrying into a family, and live a full life. And then we'll deal with the, with the, with some consequences of that, like the one you mentioned. I uh,
0: I think we can do that now, all in one. I really okay. do. I, I I because if you. If at the same time you're eliminating stigma, you're creating a pipeline for more people who have an addiction, then what have you accomplished? You've, you're, the, the, there'll still be 500. There'll be 600 families at the cemetery. We want to stop the number of families at the cemetery.
1: Right. So
0: we, we can do that by eliminating stigma through education and words like you were mentioning. And at the same time, still have a message uh of prevention of don't get there in the first place you know and this is still unhealthy and bad for you Mm -hmm. um totally agree totally agree yeah so i think we can we can do both at the same time we don't have to wait for for more families to be at the cemetery to then say oh i'm sorry now we need to change our message
1: Right.
0: right right um so uh, with that and kind of talking about normalizing drug use, do you have an a, opinion on the issue of marijuana
1: here's what I know about marijuana. What I know is that marijuana is very different today than when I grew up when I grew up i'm sixty four years old when I grew up it had when I was in high school and college, marijuana had three or four percent t l c now Most much of marijuana out there has TLC in the low to mid teens, 12, 13, 14, 15 percent, which is three and four times the TLC it had in it before. Point number one. Point number two: the research is pretty clear that the human brain is not fully developed until early to mid 20s. Any substance in the human brain, whether it's marijuana, alcohol any kind of other drug is very harmful to the human brain, and to brain until the human brain is fully formed into early to mid-20s. That's also a fact. Another fact is that those who use regularly use marijuana in their teenage years can develop psychosis. And I know two young adults who have, de- who, right now, I know two families where their son or daughter has developed psychosis And there is nothing you can do, these two children, each living on the streets. And that is a real risk. On the flip side, if someone is 30 years old or 40 years old and they want to try use marijuana recreationally, do I care? Do you care? No.
0: I I I care. the
1: The brain is, I mean, not driving a car, not raising a family, but... Someone is in their mid thirties, mid forties, mid fifties, and they want to use marijuana recreationally. No different. They want to use alcohol recreationally.
0: I'll tell you why I care. Okay. I, I care because that person is trying it just to, Hey, I'm going to try some shrimp today or some ceviche. Or, you know, they don't under, if they, if they made that decision knowing the harms, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But I think today there's such a push. Um uh you know, if I told you, if you continue using it, you can get testicular cancer and you have twofold increase. If I told you, you have an increased incidence of stroke of, of um, heart attack. If I told you that um there are drug interactions and maybe the medications that you're taking don't mix with your THC and CPD. If you had all that information and then you decided, Hey, I want to try it anyway. I want to use it anyway. Then I wouldn't have a problem with that. But right now the public is not informed. Right now, if the public picks up a cigarette and they smoke, they know that they have a risk of heart disease and emphysema. And, you know, they may be asked to do it in a different corner to prevent secondhand smoke. And I don't have a problem with that. But we don't have that kind of information and it's being hidden from the public. And that's why I have a problem.
1: Understood. And I would agree with that. But I think as long as people are informed, in most cases, correct me if I'm wrong, when you're older and mature, and your brain is fully developed, am I correct that marijuana is not less any more harmful usually than alcohol?
0: Um, I, I don't know if I can say that. I can tell you that after your brain is developed, um, you have less of a chance of addiction of any drug, right? So if you're using tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, meth, heroin, before your brain is developed, your chances of addiction are four to seven times higher than if you do it at a later age that is that is true um so you have a little bit of protection as far as developing an addiction to a substance that's why the tobacco industry was marketing to the young folks because that made long-term customers same with alcohol um but as far as harms you know there's lots of harms with alcohol um you know liver disease and you know dementia and falls and injuries but there's a growing body of evidence of the harms on marijuana, and I treat, as an emergency physician, I treat a case of marijuana poisoning every shift, every shift, and people, um you know, are not getting that message. So I, I feel like we're kind of like we were tobacco a 100 years ago. Um, now we all know about tobacco, and I'm hoping it doesn't take us a 100 years. Maybe it'll take us just 50 years um, for the issues on marijuana but uh and that's my little spiel. And something to think about cuz you teach me and hopefully I can uh Absolutely.
1: I'm learning all the time. Give you a this little great. yeah, you're Dr. giving Levitt, me a little. great. Learning all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um so it, you you do a lot more than the issue of stigma with shatterproof. So I want to have you kind of share with our audience some of the other amazing things that you're doing.
1: Well, as I mentioned, our uh, our uh one big initiative is to transform the treatment delivery system for addiction. And there we published um, our nation's first national principles of care, eight principles that should be adhered to in every treatment program in the United States, number one. Number two, we built a quality measurement system to gather data to show which treatment programs are following which practices, evidence-based practices, and which ones aren't, and to show um, over time how they're... Moving and being more adopted or less adopted, which ones, um, and to share best practices with providers so they can learn from each other and have better information, um, we've also built uh, worked with the American Society of Addiction Medicine and Open Beds to build a thirteen question consumer friendly assessment to help a patient someone looking for care determine whether they need outpatient or residential. We're also working on payment models across the country in Medicaid offices to change the way that addiction treatment is paid for so it can be paid for more efficiently to help providers have the resources they need to do things the right way because most providers want to do things the right way. And the last thing is what we talked about earlier. We're working to get the accreditation bodies or federally if it needs to be. At the end of the day, every student going through medical school or nursing school, should be taught the basics on the prevention, treatment, and recovery of addiction. So those are the five things we're doing to transform the treatment delivery system. Stigma, we've talked a lot about it. And then on the education side, we have a program that's called Just Five. We spent two years curating all the information out there into six lessons of five minutes each that families really need to know about this disease, whether they've been touched by it yet or not. And um we're now delivering it out through companies. JP Morgan Chase was the first to adopt it. We've now got dozens of companies who are have adopted this program for their employees. We have several states that have adopted for their state employees. We just landed a city soon to be announced for the large one of the larger cities in the United States for all their state employees, several healthcare systems for their healthcare professionals. Everyone needs to know this information.
0: You're amazing, Gary. I mean, you're, you're able to explain things. Well, you're the leader behind it. I, I I have to to say that. You're able to able to to state things in a very clear and succinct way and you're able to implement it and bring it actionable to J.P. Morgan. Like I wouldn't think about like talking to those people as a doctor. You're able to bring those skills, and it's you, Gary, um, that are able to do that. So I really thank you. I think that's amazing. I'm like, wow. It's like I never think of these ideas or even be able to know where to start. And you're able well, to, if I,
1: if I can push to back interface with
0: the medical community and the business community, I think it's amazing.
1: Well, thank you. But in closing, I want to say – I appreciate what you said, but it really isn't me. Yes, I started it. Yes, I'm leading it. But I will tell you, there's no way I could do hardly any of this alone. I have an amazing team that's helping us. We have amazing partnerships. I mentioned the American Society of Addiction Medicine and Open Beds who partnered with us to create this assessment. We have partnerships in six states where we launched the quality measurement system. Wonderful people in those states, in the health department, in the community, community organizations, healthcare system providers that have partnered with us just five starting with jp morgan chase and dozens of other companies are now partnering with us yes i can start it but i am so many have joined with us in partnerships and employees of Shadowproof that are doing wonderful work
0: well i mean you, you've influenced me in 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 changing and volunteers how I of Shatterproof.
1: yeah amazing help amazing yeah. donors volunteers Uh, advocates, speaking with their legislators, we have such a collection of employees, board members, advisors, volunteers, partners. It's, it's, it is just, I feel so blessed.
0: spoken like a true leader. and uh, so I, I I appreciate the advice that you had for Adama, who's leading the curriculum change, and I really look forward to the materials so I can integrate them. Absolutely. And uh, I'd like to really thank Adama. Dionysiac for the question she has for high truths and being a champion of change for safe prescribing as well. The issue of stigma, it's really been a pleasure of working with you, Adama, and and an honor. And I really enjoyed this project and Gary Mendel America is very fortunate to have you and your team uh, leading in the addiction issue, the brain power you have as an entrepreneur and businessman and the way you mesh that with um, medicine And culture and society is amazing, and I really thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you. And anyone who wants to learn more more about our work, please go to shatterproof.org, and you can see the breadth of our work and get involved in any way that you'd like or for information where we can help you. So thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review and subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.